Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. Is that on? Yes? No? Test? Yeah, okay. Um, Well, my name is Dave Hare, uh, as Pastor Brian said, and I'm really excited to be with you today. It was really good to hear the testimony of uh, the short-term missions trips. Uh, My wife, Stacy, her first um, missions experience, international mission experience, was in Albania, and uh, she went during her during college. And so it's it's neat to see that God is uh, he's he works and, and repeats his actions. It's awesome. So I'm excited to see that. Um, I do have to kind of apologize because the best part of any missions presentation I ever do is my wife, um, and she's not here. So you guys kind of you you're missing out. But uh, there's Stacy right there on the screen, and our four kids, Kaden, Makaira, Elias, and Zoe. And that picture was taken on Christmas Day in our village in uh, Cameroon, Africa. Uh, Our primary job in Cameroon is to work as Bible translators. And we want the Kwakum to be able to have the Bible in their language. And we've encountered a lot of obstacles along the way. One of the first obstacles was that the Bakum people didn't have a writing system. So when we came in, moved into one of their villages in 2014, we had to learn their language, but they didn't have any way of writing it down. And so... It was very challenging, and we, we actually spent three full years basically just learning and listening and writing things down using our linguistics training and, uh, and trying to figure out when, where there are breaks between words and what words mean and things like that. And it was really challenging, um, but the Lord gave us grace, and now we, we came back to the States for our first home assignment, and uh, we studied more linguistics and went back and were able to develop a writing system for the Kwakum people. And then we're able to start literacy and Bible translation. So about four years ago, we were able to start translating the Bible. And we have, um, oh, I have a picture of our house, yeah. So that's where we live in the village. And um, when we do Bible translation, we have two teams. So the, the next slide is my team. I have four guys, Kwakum guys I work with. And our job is to produce the very first draft of a passage, a story that we're translating um, in Kwakum. And uh, we usually spend about three or four days just wrestling through one particular story, and we finish a, a rough draft, and then we pass it on to Stacy's team. I don't have a picture of them, but they go out and they test it in the villages and make sure that we did a good job. And as I'm working with my team to develop the very first ever in history um, translation, rough draft of a story in Kwakum, um, we, we wrestle with the text because one of the main principles of Bible translation, really just translation in general, is you can't translate something you don't understand. And so I have to prepare myself, and then I have to prepare my team to understand the Word of God. And as we've been doing this, most of, all of my team actually has had um, some experience with the Bible, and all of them were already believers when we arrived, the four men on my team, which is awesome. So they know the Bible a little bit. They've heard it in French, um, but their understanding of French is, is weak, and so they've never understood a lot. And one thing that keeps happening as we're translating the Bible is they keep looking at me and saying, what? Why would God do that as we're translating stories? So at the very beginning, you know, the, the second story we did was the fall, 
And as we're translating the Father, like, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Like, if there had no, been no opportunity to sin, they wouldn't have sinned, right? So that's, and that's, I think, a question maybe we've all had at some point and thought about that, right? Some of the questions they come up with, though, are ones that show me a little bit about their culture. So as we've translated, we keep running into situations where God chooses someone who is not the, the oldest son in the family to do works for him. So Jacob and Esau is one really clear example of that. But even when God chooses Judah uh, and the line goes to, through to David, who again was not the firstborn, the line goes to Jesus, God's not choosing the firstborn. That's never bothered me. But for them in, in the Kwakum culture, which I think is probably more like the Jewish culture, the firstborn son is the one who has the most authority, the most responsibility. So they asked me, well, why in the world would God not use the firstborn son? It's not like Jacob was better than Esau, right? I mean, read the story. Jacob was a liar, right? And so why did God choose Jacob? So we keep having these questions that just keep coming up. And some of it is just normal questions we all have. Some of it is based on their culture. And some of it's based on just bad teaching that's been happening in Cameroon. So if you were to come to Cameroon, you might actually be surprised. You know I'm a missionary there. You start driving through the villages. If you know what the churches look like, you might be surprised. This is one church here in the next picture. That's a church. So you might not know what they look like, but once you realize what churches look like, you'd realize there are actually churches all over the place. Um, in every village, almost every Kwakum village, there's at least one church, and some of them have even more. And so when we first arrived, we went to go visit all of these churches, and we just kind of wanted to meet the, the pastors, meet the people who are there, and see what they are teaching, and we never heard the gospel in any of these churches, not even once. And what we did here is what has become known as the prosperity gospel. So the prosperity gospel says God is rich, he has uh, enormous resources, and he's generous. That's all true. That's good, right? And they say God doesn't want you to be poor. He wants you to be rich. He wants, he's generous. He wants to give you um, everything. And so if there's a problem, if you're poor, if you're sick, you're, it's your fault. Because you're, you must be doing something that's preventing God from giving you um, the blessing that he wants to give you. It's the prosperity gospel. It actually came from America, so it's kind of our fault. Um, but that, that's what they're hearing in their churches and it actually sounds like it's a really nice message. People like hearing that. Like, oh, so if I do this list of things that God gives me to do, I can be rich, and I can be healthy, and I don't have to be poor anymore. The only problem with this nice-sounding message is it's not true. And because it's not true, it never leads to godliness. It either leads to pride, so there's people who are wealthy or healthy, and then they're like, well, I'm godly, right, because I'm wealthy and healthy. Or it leads to just desperation, I'm doing everything I can do, and I'm still poor, and I'm still sick. Never leads to godliness. And what's funny is the ones that do end up being wealthy is really just the preachers, because one of those works that they give them to do is to give money to the church. And so those are the only people that end up being okay financially. And so into this wrong and broken and exploitative system, culture, we have started translating the Bible, and it's just shocking they're hearing these stories of, of who God is, who God has revealed himself to be, and it just shocks them. Um, one of the stories that I think has had the most impact so far, we've gotten up through the Exodus story, the end of the Exodus story, and one of the stories that has had the most impact has been the story of Joseph. And I think you guys probably know the story of Joseph, so I'll just give you some highlights. But Joseph was born into a family with lots of older brothers, but his father kind of liked him better. 
and gave him special gifts and treated him better and even used Joseph as kind of like a, a spy to make sure his brothers were, were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And as a result, his brothers hated him. And um, it was because of jealousy. It wasn't really because of something he had done wrong. He was obeying his father. Um, so the brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. Again, remember the prosperity gospel is teaching that if you do what is right, then you'll be honored by God and you'll have health and wealth. Joseph was obeying his father, yet he was thrown into a pit. So he ends up getting sold into slavery. He becomes a servant, a slave to Potiphar in Egypt, and he works hard, and he honors the Lord. It says it in the text. He, he worked like a man who was working for the Lord, um, but his master's wife lusted after him. And because he would, he, again, because he honored the Lord and wouldn't sleep with her, uh, he was arrested, and he was thrown into prison. And again, he's being godly. He's suffering, being godly, suffering. We just see this pattern over and over in Joseph's life. In prison, he was godly, and he worked hard, and he was even acknowledged as someone who was working hard, and he was given responsibility from the warden in prison. And he then interpreted dreams for two guys. One of them was killed, but one of them left prison. And he said, remember me, and he didn't. He just left him in prison for years. Again, he's being godly. He's doing what he's going to do. Well, you think there's redemption at the end, right? Joseph's brought out of prison. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and he ends up becoming essentially king. I mean, king-like in Egypt, right? And then his brothers come. But God didn't do this so that he could take revenge on his brothers. Why did God save him from prison and bring him out and put him in this king position? So he could save the lives of his oppressors. And he acknowledges that to the end, at the end. God took me out of this so I could save your lives and the lives of many others. And so if you can just kind of take a moment hearing this story for the first time. You guys have heard it a lot of times, but imagine hearing it for the first time when your only concept of God is that God is a God who gives health and wealth to those who obey him. And you look at Joseph's life and just say, this is what they said to me. They said, this is not the God that we have been taught. Why in the world would God allow Joseph to endure that kind of suffering? I kind of wonder if you guys have ever felt that way. Have you ever had a question when you're reading the Word of God, why did God do it that way? That's not the way I would have done it. Maybe you've had something happen in your life and thought, why in the world did God let that happen to me or, or to one of my friends or someone that I care about? If you have those kind of questions, I want you to know that you're in good company. And as I've been wrestling through those questions, and, and we wrestle for answers um, with, with, uh, with my team. We think about why God may have done things, and there are places where God explains why he did things, but there's a lot of places where it doesn't, where it never tells us why God chose to do things the way that he did. And what I, one thing I was surprised at as I've been thinking through this and processing through it is that I found that actually there's a lot of people in the Bible that ask that same question. Even biblical authors sometimes ask that question, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing it that way? And I took great encouragement reading in the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to read through Habakkuk right now. And seeing that Habakkuk, who is a prophet of God, also had those questions, the same kind of questions that we have often when we read about God and when we see what God is doing. So you, if you'll open to Habakkuk, it's near the end of the Old Testament. So if you start from Matthew, you can go backwards five books. Habakkuk, is a, it's a small book. It's only three chapters. I'd like to read the whole thing, but I don't think we have time for that. So we're going to just kind of do a flyover. I want to learn not necessarily the specifics that we're going to see in Habakkuk, but just a general message that I see in Habakkuk that has encouraged me as we've been going through this process. 
The very first verse is, uh, it says, an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, We don't know a lot about Habakkuk other than what's in this verse. So we know he's a prophet. What's a prophet? Prophet is someone who speaks for God on behalf of God, uh, usually to his people, but sometimes to other people groups as well. Um, It's called an oracle. Uh, That word doesn't have a lot of meaning to me. I don't know if it means a lot to you. I think of the matrix whenever I think of an oracle, right? Oracle here just basically means message. It's, it's, it's some sort of a, a prophetic message that God has given to his prophet, who's his mouthpiece, who's going to speak the message to the people. Um, it also says he saw a message. So it was probably in some sort of a vision, and we get a, an idea at the end of it that it was kind of more of a vision. But really, what we mostly can see and interpret this as is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And so that's kind of how we're going to structure it and look at what's happening in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk speaks, God speaks. Habakkuk speaks, God speaks. Habakkuk speaks. And so that's the the overall uh, message. And so what we're going to actually start with here is a complaint of Habakkuk. I want to give you just a little bit of context before we read his complaint. Habakkuk was a prophet that was living in the southern kingdom when Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom they called Israel, the southern kingdom they called Judah at the time. Israel had disobeyed God, dishonored the Lord, And because of that, they were taken captive into slavery into Assyria. The Assyrians were a nasty group of people that were violent and angry. They came in and they took uh, the Israelites in the northern kingdom into slavery. You may have heard of Nineveh. That's where Jonah went. That's Assyria, right? And now we're talking about the southern kingdom with Habakkuk. And so the southern kingdom, Assyria was taken like 100 years ago. So this is happening many years after that happened. But we're going to see if, uh, if Judah is going to listen, if they're going to do what, is, what the northern kingdom did, or if they're going to listen to their prophets and obey. At the end of the day, we, we, we know what happens to them. They end up being taken into captivity as well. And um, basically what was happening at this particular point when we're reading this book is Habakkuk is living in Judah. He's seeing the people of Judah around him living in sin. And he's seeing that they're not honoring God with their lives. And so he actually prays a complaint to God. And this is apparently not the first time he's done it. So let's just read that. It's verses 2 through 4. This is Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. And the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes perverted. So again, Habakkuk's looking around at his Jewish neighbors. And he's seeing violence. He's seeing strife and iniquity and destruction and contention. He says justice can't even go forward. We've got corrupt judges and corrupt police officers. And so there is no justice around him. And apparently, he's been praying this for a while. How long shall I cry out for help and you shall not hear? You will not hear. So this is kind of the first time in the book we see a prophet of God here. This is Habakkuk, God's prophet. And he's asking God, why? In this sense, he's asking him, why are you not doing something? As opposed to why did you do something that we were asking earlier. But why are you not doing something about this? Now, one thing that has never happened to me as I've asked these questions that did happen to Habakkuk is God answered him. So we get this really cool opportunity to hear what God has to say to that question. 
So let's look at it. We're going to read, just read verse 5 first. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God starts and he says, Be surprised. Right? So Habakkuk's like, I'm surprised. Why are you not doing something, God? And God says, Yeah, be surprised. But guess what? I am doing something. And you wouldn't even believe what I'm going to do. That kind of raises a question, right? What's he going to say? You know, what, what is God doing? I'm, I'm saying that he's not doing something. Now, what is God doing? Well, let's look at verses 6 through 11 now. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces forward. And they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. And they sweep by like the wind and they go on. So, again, remember the conversation. Habakkuk's looking around, seeing violence, sin all around him. And he says to God, why aren't you doing something about this? God responds, I am doing something about it. And what is it that God's doing? He says he's bringing the Chaldeans to come into Judah. Now, who are the Chaldeans? Probably have heard them known as the Babylonians. That's another word for the Chaldeans. They were a, a kingdom that kind of came out of the middle of nowhere. They were unknown, really, overall in their region. And all of a sudden, they just started taking over everywhere. They just ran around the whole ancient Near East, destroying kingdoms. They took land that didn't belong to them. They were fierce. God says here, they come for violence. And they kill and they take captives. They mock kings. They mock gods. And at the very end of that verse that we just read in verse 11... He says, whose own might is their God. They look around at all this destruction they're wreaking and they, and they think, we are gods. Wow. Right? If you could imagine being Habakkuk here. He's saying, God, I want you to do something to stop the violence that I see around me. I don't know what he had in mind. He must have imagined some sort of judgment, but I think overall he's probably hoping for redemption, salvation, right? And God says, well, guess what? I am doing something. I'm bringing a violent people who are actually, by the way, more violent than the Jews. I'm going to bring them in and they're going to take you captive. They're going to kill lots of you and take the rest of you back to their land. I, can, I bet you can imagine what Habakkuk's about to say, even if you've never read this verse before. He was shocked. He was surprised. He, he was like, that's, that's not right. Listen to what he says in verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked man swallows up a man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk hears God's message. God says, I am doing something. 
what I'm doing is I'm bringing a violent people in to come and take you into captivity. And he says, what? How could you do that? I think there's two main things here that shock Habakkuk. First is he's using the Babylonians, this evil Gentile people group that knows nothing of God, who worship their own power, they worship themselves, and he's using them to conquer the Jews who are the people of God. That seems to go against God's character. That's why it's shocking to him. That doesn't seem to be the God that he knows. So he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? Aren't you the one who's of purer eyes than to see evil? And yet you're going to use a, a wicked, sinful people group to judge a less wicked and sinful people group? That doesn't make any sense to him. And then the second complaint he has is, he knows who they are. They are Israel. They are God's people. God has made promises to them. He says, we will not die. Why would he say that? Because he knows that God has promised them that they will endure. He knows that God has promised them the land and that they will live in his land. And so what he's saying to them is he's saying, he's saying to God, Habakkuk, he's saying, God, this, isn't who you, this doesn't seem to match who you are, who I know you to be. I know your character. I'm your prophet. And then secondly, you've made a covenant to us. You can't break that covenant. Now I want you to notice here, Habakkuk's not being a skeptic. Um, I heard an atheist one time, one of those pop atheists that um, writes books and stuff. He said, I expect that God should be at least as compassionate as me. And what that atheist is doing is he's putting himself above God and saying he should come to the standard of who I am. That's not what Habakkuk is doing here. He's not judging God. He's looking at God and saying, God, I know your character. He's trusting in him. I know your character. And he's appealing to him based on the character of God. One commentator said that it's not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that torments Habakkuk here. In other words, Habakkuk is saying, I know your character, God. I know the covenant you made with us. We are your people. So how could you do this? That is a a perplexed attitude of a prophet of God. The same kind of perplexity that I've felt at times when I've read the Bible or when I've seen what God is doing in in the world. The same kind of perplexity I see in my translators. Well, God's response to this second questioning as well. So we have God's answer to that. We're going to skip down to chapter 2, verse 2. And we're going to see how God responds. First, the Lord answered me, he says in verse 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So the very first thing God tells Habakkuk is, all right, write this down. One thing that's kind of hard to see if you're reading just the English here is that this whole time that God's been talking, he hasn't been just talking to Habakkuk. He's talking to the whole people of Judah. He wants them all to know. He even wants Habakkuk to write this down so that everyone will know what about, he's about to reveal. He's about to reveal a vision of the future to Habakkuk, and he wants everyone to know about it. And when I say everyone, he wants everyone to know about it. That's why he wrote it down. This is one of the reasons, by the way, we translate a written Bible for people who are primarily oral people. God says he wants it written down, and I'm going to write it down. Because he wants everyone to know who he is and what he's doing. God has heard Habakkuk's complaint, and now he wants him to write down his response. And he told him, just a little bit, just so that he can be prepared, not only is this something I want you to write down, it's something that will definitely happen. 
he says, it will not lie. The vision that awaits, the vision that I'm going to show you, it won't lie. One of the great things that we're finding out through the Bible, through reading the Old Testament, and one of the main reasons we're perplexed is because God is not like us. And so God doesn't do what we would do if we were God. And that's what's perplexing. But one way that's very clear that God is not like us is He doesn't ever lie. And we know for sure, whatever He says He's going to do, He is going to do it. And sometimes He says it might seem slow. That's what He says in verse, in verse 3 here. It might seem slow, but just wait for it. It's definitely going to happen. And then, it's kind of hard if you're just reading through here. It's, it's, they, they helped you with the, in the ESV um, to see what's happening. Um, it switches over in verse 4. And it shows that this is the beginning. They add a little break there so you can see. This is the beginning of that vision. The beginning of that prophecy. And this is what God says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. You guys see that? So this is the beginning of the vision that God is, wants Habakkuk to write down. This is what God wants him to write down. And it's a little strange for us because we're looking and there's just like a pronoun there. Behold, you know, his, his soul is puffed up. It's kind of confusing. But what's happening here is that God is now speaking to Habakkuk and all of the people of Judah. And he's talking about the Babylonians. So the he here, the his, his soul is puffed up, is referring to the Babylonian. Kind of referring to a Babylonian as a general picture of the Babylonians. And he's saying, behold, his soul is puffed up. So Habakkuk's worried. Habakkuk's like, I'm seeing violence all around me, God. Why don't you do something? God responds, I am doing something. And I'm bringing the Babylonians in to conquer you. Habakkuk's shocked and perplexed and like, what, you can't do that? They're a terrible people. And God says, you're right. They are. Their soul is puffed up. They are proud. They're the ones that are saying, my own might is my God, right? But then he says... The righteous shall live by faith. I don't know if it feels a little out of place to you there. It kind of did when I was reading it. I'm trying to understand this concept that God is, is teaching. I've heard that verse so many times, right? But never in Habakkuk. I always hear this verse in the New Testament. You can find it in three different places, in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. One of the most common places we read this verse is in Romans 1.17, where Paul said, For it is the righteousness of God, for the righteousness, sorry, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is actually a verse, Romans 1.17, that has completely changed the world. And actually we wouldn't be sitting here studying like we are today if it wasn't for that verse. Because back in the 1500s, uh, a, a German Catholic monk read this verse and was perplexed by it. And he was like, what does this mean? And he really focused on the word righteous here. What does it mean to be righteous? And for his whole life, he figured that it meant that he had to work really hard to be righteous before God. And then God opened his eyes and he realized that the righteousness that we see in the scriptures is like what happened with Abraham. That God saw that he had faith and he counted it to him as righteousness. The righteousness that a Christian has isn't one that he's earned. It's not like the prosperity gospel, which says you need to work hard so that God will bless you. But instead, the righteousness that comes uh, through faith in the Bible is something that's a gift from God. It's free. He gives it to us. He calls us righteous. And that completely changed Martin Luther's view of the Bible, of God. He actually says he hated God before this. Because he always felt like he couldn't measure up to God. And now, he reads this verse and he knows what it means. He understands it and he says, that's right, I don't measure up to God. And yet God has still counted me as righteous because I believe. Now, 
that changed Martin Luther's life. That changed our lives, whether you know it or not. But I don't want to focus on the word righteous here. I want to focus on the word faith. The righteous shall live by faith. As I've been processing this, the Kwakum don't have a word for faith. They don't have a word, a noun, uh, for belief, for faith. And so we've been really struggling. They have a, a verb um, for to believe. But even that is, it's kind of confusing and not everyone seems to really understand what it means. And what this has forced me to do is to try to figure out what I think belief means or faith means. What does the word faith mean? We know that it's not just an intellectual assent, right? Because James tells us that even demons believe in God and they shudder. So it's not even like to be afraid of what you hear because the demons believe. And I think that when you understand what faith is, when we see what We don't really use that word outside the church, but when we think about it and really figure out what does that word mean in our lives, I think it makes sense of what God is saying here. Again, follow the train of thought. Habakkuk's looking around seeing violence. He hates it. He pleads with God, would you please do something? God comes back and says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in to be even more violent. And Habakkuk says, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. I know that you are a God who does not love violence. You love peace. And... God responds and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. I think what he was saying is, do you trust me? I think that's what faith means. Most of the time in the Bible, I think the word faith means trust. Do you trust me? No matter what is going to happen, what I'm going to tell you after this in this passage, do you trust me? Now God doesn't require of us a blind faith. He doesn't require us to to trust in someone we don't know. He's actually filled the Bible, with stories that show us that he's trustworthy. But he doesn't always tell us why he does things. He gives a few things to Habakkuk here, again in chapter 12. In verse 8, he's speaking actually to the Babylonians. He he, uh, proclaims these woes in uh, chapter 2 here against the Babylonians. And, And what he says is, Because you have plundered many nations, all of the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Basically what he's saying here is, you Babylonians, you think you're awesome. You've popped up out of nowhere and conquered Assyria, that really bad kingdom I was talking about earlier. They just conquered them. Like 20 years before this, nobody knew who they were. And then all of a sudden they conquer Assyria. And God says, you think you're awesome, but one day you too will be judged. This is a promise that God is making. Yes, I'm using the Babylonians to judge the Jews, but I'm not overlooking their sin. I'm going to deal with that too. He also gives him some really great hope in verse 14. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's given him this vision, remember? The vision, one day the Babylonians are going to be conquered. And one day, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Where in the sea is there no water? It's, it's everywhere, right? That's what a sea is. And the earth is one day going to be like that with the knowledge of the glory of the God. You can't go anywhere in the sea and not be in water. That's, it's like the definition of a sea, right? There will one day be a, there be a time when no matter where you go on the earth, there will only be the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's a great hope that he's giving to Habakkuk. He's giving him the reason that he should trust in him. Another reason in verse 20 He says, this is God speaking, but the Lord is in his temple. Let all of the earth keep silence before him. So never never in this part, he never says, I'm going to save Israel. He never says that. 
He says, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians. There's going to come a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be all over the earth. And um, I'm on, in my holy temple. I'm sitting on my throne. I'm in charge of everything that's happening. He wasn't giving him the answer. He wasn't saying it's going to be okay in the end. But he was, right? He was saying it's going to be okay in the end because he was saying that he's in charge. In Europe, I've spent some time in Europe, and I've spent time with Americans too, and I, we're kind of drifting towards Europe, I think, overall as, as a country. And there are many people here who are saying that there is no God. But we know that God sits on his throne, and he does whatever he pleases. And that gives us hope. In uh, Isaiah, you'll find even more hope. Uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, Isaiah is a prophet speaking to the same people at the same time. And he's telling them that judgment's going to come. And then like in the middle of the book of Isaiah, judgment comes. And then they all go and get taken into Babylon. And he says in Isaiah 55 that one day they will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing and all the trees will clap their hands. He gives them this great hope, this vision of a future. And Habakkuk knew all that. So he doesn't understand what God's doing, but he does know he can trust God. He does know that in the end it's going to work out. And we see that especially in chapter 3, verse 17 to the end. Or I'll just read you know, 17 and 18. No, yeah, I'll go all the way to the end. It says, For the fig tree should, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and He makes me tread on high places. So we see that Habakkuk believed. We see that he trusted God. He didn't know. He still doesn't know why God is doing this. He, God never explained Himself. He never said ex exactly why He's decided to use a more evil people to do something to bring judgment on people who are less evil. But He knows that He can trust God. And you hear the, just hear the faith ringing through his words here. He says, though the tree, fig tree should not blossom, though the, the, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off. They were agricultures, or they were, how do you say that in English? They were farmers. And they, um, they also raised animals. That's like how they lived. And he's like, I believe that there probably will be coming a day now, I see, where we won't have any field, we won't have any food coming from our fields. We won't have any flocks. He's looking forward now at that vision that God gave him as far as the destruction that is going to come from the Babylonians. And he says, I believe, and yet I will rejoice. I will take joy in the God of my what? In the God of my salvation. He was full of faith. He had no idea what was happening. He had no idea why it was happening, but he just knew he could trust God, and that resulted in joy. I think the looking through this conversation that Habakkuk had with God has just helped me understand, helped me even answer back to my translators just this really difficult truth that is also a beautiful truth that God is just not like us. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't act like we'd expect Him to do. And sometimes we're just left wondering, God, why did you do that? I don't understand. But in reality, I think that the fact that God is not like us is actually really, really good news. Why is it good news? Because God is always good. One of the biggest differences between us and God is that God is always good. And as Habakkuk learned here, sometimes God does use evil. 
to accomplish His purposes. But those purposes are always the good of His people. Always. Here in Habakkuk, God is using an evil, wicked, idolatrous people group to bring discipline upon His people. But in the end, He knows it will be for their salvation and for their good. So I've used this this story, this this passage in Habakkuk to kind of reveal this overall truth that God has been helping me understand as we're on the field that God is not like us. He doesn't do what we'd expect Him to do. He, pretty much any time I think, what is it that God is going to do? I'm just wrong. But what I've seen all the way through Scripture is that that all comes to a head in one really perplexing thing that God did, which was to give His Son to die on the cross for us. I mean, how many of you would do that? You look out at the earth, I created these people, I created them to love me and worship me. They chose sin and violence and hatred, so I'm going to send my son to be murdered by them. And then use that to save them. How many of you would have chosen that? None of us, right? Because God is not like us. He doesn't do what we we would expect Him to do. And it's awesome. Because He always does what is good. I've had the opportunity to watch this, uh, this, uh, this God, the God of the Bible, confront the Kwakum people, confront their culture, confront their assumptions, confront what they've heard in church, to the point that in the story of Joseph, they're realizing that God is, not, is a God who uses evil for good. And sometimes, maybe even most of the time, if you worship God and follow God, you're going to suffer. But what I've learned is that many of them have seen through these same stories that God is a God you can trust. And I want to share, just as I conclude here, a story of one person who's learned this message very well, someone who encourages me and makes me want to keep going. So the next slide here is a picture of a woman named Mommy. I know it's weird to call someone Mommy. It seems strange for an English speaker, but that's her name. So I'm not going to change her name, but... Um, when we first went onto the field, um, we spent three years in the village, and we shop at a market, so open-air market, that's where we get our food, and when Stacy would go to the market, she'd run into mommy, and she was super abrasive. Like, as a general rule, the Kwakum people are more abrasive than Americans are, but uh, mommy was very, very abrasive. She would follow Stacy around the market and be like, why are you buying from them and not me? Why are you buying from them and not me? And she would just be really irritating like all the time. And Stacy's like, I'll buy from who I want to buy from, right? She, you're not going to tell me who I have to buy from. It was just, she was a difficult person to love. And then in God's sovereignty, she decided to move into the house right behind our house. And so now, not only is mommy an abrasive, frustrating person, but she's always there, just always behind our house and always there coming and asking us for things. And when we left for our first home assignment, we weren't like super sad to leave that relationship behind. But when we came back, she was still there. And so she was living behind our house, and she started coming up to us um, when we came back in 2018. And this time, she wasn't just asking us to buy stuff. She kept asking us every single day, can I please work in your house? I'll, I'll clean dishes. I'll sweep your floors. I'll make your food. Can I please come and work for you? And we were, of course, like, no. Like, uh, of all of the people that I know, I don't want you to be in my house every day, right? And it was frustrating, but we did seek to be kind, especially Stacy. She's kinder than I am, and she was just seeking to be kind and hoping that even though this is a difficult relationship, praying that the Lord would use that relationship to lead mommy to the Lord. Um, At one point, there was an evening, and we heard a fight. There's fights all the time. It's very common. I used to go out and try to break them up, um, but I kind of found that a lot of times they don't end in violence. 
But when they do, I do try to go out, and I've even, I had to buy a, a pair of handcuffs because one of my neighbors gets so drunk and so violent that um, he just needs to be restrained. Um, and so it's rough. So we hear fighting, and we listen, and we try to determine whether or not it's turning to violence. And if it is, we, I try to go and do something about it. This particular night, we didn't go out. Um, we just heard the violence. It was over at Mommy's house. Um, and though we didn't think it was violent, it turned out it, it was. And Mommy's father was murdered that night by Mommy's stepbrother. It was a shock, you know, very surprising. This was a, a blind man who had been coming to church, and, and it was, I was having encouraging conversations with him. So we went to his funeral. We took some, oh, I mean, the church came, the people that are in our church, we all went there. And Mommy just clung to Stacy throughout the whole funeral time, which was really surprising to Stacy because we're kind of irritated by her overall, you know. But it turned out that Mommy actually saw Stacy as a friend. And... Mommy ended up reporting her stepbrother. He ended up going to prison, and um, the funeral was over. And we just started to feel compassion for Mommy. Um, so we did. We started to hire her for some tasks, you know, do some cooking, do some cleaning for us. But Stacy made it a deal with her. She said, I'll, I'll let you come and work at our house, but every time you come, we're going to do a Bible study first. And Mommy was like, okay. So she came, and, and an amazing thing happened. Stacy started studying the Bible with mommy, and everything that she heard in the Bible, she believed. Everything. Without question. She just accepted it. She just believed everything that she heard, which meant then we went from being kind of annoyed by this person to now discipling this person. And she, had, she was pregnant at the time. Um, she was living with her boyfriend, and uh, there were all these issues. I mean, constant... Um, conflict with other people. So we were just trying to help her work through what the Bible says, mostly dealing in French because we hadn't translated much at this time, and just trying to help her process what it is to be a Christian in the village. And she said, you know what, I think, um, I, think I need to start sharing the word with my boyfriend, Co. And we're like, absolutely, he wouldn't come to church ever. And, uh, and so she went and started sharing the word, and an amazing thing happened. Co just believed everything he heard. Everything he heard, he just believed it. He just trusted in the Word of God. And now, recently, Mommy and Koba said, um, before we, we understood the Word of God, we were just like animals. We just did whatever our bodies told us to do at all times. But now, they just love the Lord, and they were actually baptized. There's their baptism there. They were baptized in the river together, and they did something that almost, I've never seen a Kwakum wedding, but they said, we want to honor the Lord and get married. They actually separated for a year so he could pay the bride price so that they could come together and get married uh, and honor the Lord with their lives. They, they gave birth to their son and named him David, which was an honor. I was encouraged by that. Um, and uh, throughout this time, God just is shaping mommy's heart and just changing her from being an abrasive person to being this really loving person. And one thing she started to be convicted of was her brother, her stepbrother, who was in prison. The prisons in Cameroon are just horrible. Um, they don't really feed them. Um, prisoners have told me that they, they, when they see a cockroach, they'll just eat it because they're so hungry. And so basically, if you're in prison and you don't have family coming to help you and bring you food and things, you often starve in prison. And mommy knew no one was going to visit her stepbrother in prison. And she said, I was, I was reading the Bible, and I just came to this conclusion. I think that if I go and visit my stepbrother in prison, I think it would be like I'm visiting Jesus in prison. 
Now, we didn't teach her that. She's, she's now absorbing and being changed by the word of God, and she, and she loves it, and she wants to honor him. And we, we said, we agree, you know, we'll help you. We'll, we'll drive you. The prison was kind of a, a two-hour drive away, so we would drive her down there so that she could go and minister to her brother. And, and a really strange thing happened when she did that. Her family hated her. Because basically they said, when you're caring for him in prison, you're taking his side and you're abandoning your father. So her aunts and uncles um, not only hated her, they, they said, we will not spend time with you. They would ignore her. One of them even tried to hit her with a motorcycle as he was driving past. And I want you to just imagine being a brand new believer. You're learning what the word of God says. You're learning what God wants for you. You're seeking to do it. And, and your family abandons you because of it. And as we've taught the Word of God, because these things are hard, because they're perplexing, because God doesn't do what their culture tells Him He should do, a lot of people have rejected it, even become very angry with us, spiteful sometimes, because of this message. But for some people like Mommy, they hear what God says and says, I just believe. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why God would do that. I just believe. And when I read of the God of the Bible, I just trust Him. They got married. I told you, there's a, I had another picture of that up there, I think. Um, it, they got married in our translation center, and it was just such a happy day, and her family didn't come, and they were like, who cares? <laughs> we just, we have a new family now, because we are seeking after Christ. Well, last year, uh, Mommy and Co. Uh, got pregnant again, uh, so they had their first baby, David, David, and, uh, and now Mommy was pregnant again, and they were, they were kind of approaching this, this pregnancy with some sobriety. You know, they're very poor. Um, and they just know this is another mouth to feed, but they were also super excited. We, we would sit around and talk about what they would want to name the baby, and we took mommy in for medical checkups, and uh, around the 39th week of her pregnancy, she started to bleed. And uh, so we took her to the, the medical clinic, and the medical clinics are really like not much better than the prisons. I mean, just terrible. The people that work there, don't love, um, and they, they just treat people poorly, and they didn't care for mommy well. I don't know if, if there would have actually been a possibility to, um, to save the baby, but they didn't. Um, they ended up sending her to another, another village to have a C-section, and yeah, so they removed, removed the baby. And so now, uh, mommy is, she had to lay in this clinic for, for three weeks, I think, after the C-section, feeling all of the pain, all of that without having a baby to, to comfort her. And again, just imagine being a brand new baby Christian and you're seeking to honor the Lord. You're doing things that your, your neighbors mock you for, your family abandons you for. How would you respond? And would you be angry with God? Would you question God? We asked mommy how she responded, and we have a video here I want you to watch. This was right before we left. I just want you to hear how she responded. So I don't know if you caught it, but uh, we asked mommy just in this, for this interview, we just said, how, how has the Lord been changing your life through understanding the word in, in Kwakum? And she just said, I, I, I see that God uses evil for good. And I wouldn't have believed that before. And the two times that she, um, she saw that in her life was when her father died, that God used that to lead her to salvation. 
And the second was in losing this child, she ended up being restored to the rest of her family. Um, when the news came to her, her family members, the person who shared it with them thought they would rejoice um, that she lost this baby because uh, that, that's how bitter and angry they were towards her. And they didn't. Um, they were compassionate. And they're reconciled now. Um, so how did mommy respond to the suffering in her life? She just trusted God. She just trusted. She didn't know. She, she felt like she saw some of the reason that God did what he did. Um, but she just knew God from, from the Bible. And she knew that she could trust him. And so I'm going to pray. But before I do that, I just want to take a moment and ask you, do you trust God? Do you trust him when you're reading the Bible and he does stuff that you don't understand why he did it? Do you trust him when... Something happens in your life that, that's tragic and hard. There's so much pressure here in America to be ashamed of the God of the Bible. So much so that um, I heard a pastor not long ago saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is not the, the God that we should worship as Christians. It's not, that does, should, what happened in the Old Testament, that shouldn't guide our life. I think it's just the exact opposite of it. I'm so glad that we've started translating these Old Testament stories because the Kwakum people don't know who God is and they need to know who He is before they can trust Him. I think we need the Old Testament. We need it to know God. But if you study it, you're going to find that God is not like us. And He doesn't do the things that we would expect Him to do. And sometimes it will be confusing and it will be perplexing. It will even be frustrating. And sometimes we'll look at what's in the Old Testament and say, God, why did you do that? But I want to encourage you to just say that's not always a wrong question to ask. Habakkuk asked it. David asked it. Mary, Jesus' mother, asked it. Or at least she asked, how is this going to happen, right? Even in uh, the book of Revelation, we see the, the martyr saints that call out to, to God and they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? The question of why, why are you waiting? Why don't you judge it now? That's even going to be in heaven in the end times. But listen to, if you listen to what they said at the beginning, oh, sovereign God, holy and true. They're not questioning who he is. They're just saying, I don't understand why you're waiting. I don't understand why you're doing things. I think it's actually right to question God, to not understand God, to be perplexed because we're not God. And he doesn't do the things that we would want him to do. He delays when we would have acted, or he acts when we would have given more time. He tells us what is right and wrong, and he's not afraid of being canceled. His character isn't shaped by American values or Western values. Our God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he wishes. And sometimes, for those of us who are so different from God, it's just perplexing and it's confusing, it's frustrating. God, I would, have, I would have stopped these people from doing what they're doing by now. God, I would have let my, children, my child live. God, why did you let my friend betray me? Why did you let me trust them? Those questions aren't wrong in and of themselves. But I encourage us to ask them like Habakkuk. To ask them trusting. The hard attitude we should have is not... Are you really God? Are you really there? But God, I trust you. I know you're there and I don't understand what you're doing. But I know that whatever you do, it will be good. 
And sometimes God reveals the why. I mean, mommy feels like she knows why she lost her baby, which is awesome. But a lot of times he doesn't. God never told Habakkuk that he was going to save his people. He never told Job why Job suffered. But the question for us today is, whether you know or not, whether you, you understand what God is doing or not, do you trust him? I told you we don't really have a good word for faith in Kwakum. But not too long before we left, we figured out that they do say something when, they, uh, when they're talking about the idea of trust. And what they say is, I gave my heart to someone. And I really like it. I like it because your heart is just this like soft, mushy, vulnerable organ, right? And imagine giving your heart to someone. I don't know if you've ever had a heart surgery. I haven't. But you're trusting the doctor if you're having a heart surgery because he's taking your, your chest open and he's sticking things in that soft, vulnerable organ that you have, right? And so the Kwakum say, do you, did you give your heart to someone? Do you, do you trust them? Do you trust God? Do you trust him with your heart? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your children? I'm going to give you a promise right now. If you do trust God, you won't be disappointed. Did you guys see mommy's face in this video? This was like two months after she lost her baby, and she was just radiant. She was talking about the murder of her father and the death of her baby, and she just had such a great joy, the kind of joy we saw in the end of Habakkuk. Mommy is, an, is now an orphan. Her mom died a long time ago. She has a fifth-grade education, she lives in a wood plank house with no electricity in the middle of a village in Africa. And yet she knows deeper joy than most Americans that I know. And she, she knows that she has that joy because she trusts God. It's the kind of joy that only comes when you trust God. I pray that we would all know that kind of joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Mommy and Habakkuk and... Joseph and all of these different stories that you've put in our lives, either in the Bible or outside of it, that show us that you are a God who deserves our trust. Father, you've shown us over and over and over again that though you don't do things the way we would do them, you are worthy of our trust. And I pray, Father, I want us to know the power of your word in our lives. I want to see the kind of changes in this church that I see in Co and Mommy and in those others who have believed in the village but Father, that kind of change only comes when we trust you. I pray that you would take your word, that you would pierce us. Your, your word tells us it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that it would pierce us. It would divide our thoughts and intentions. And it would help us to see the areas that we don't trust you, Father. I pray that we'd repent of that and that we might know the power of your word. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.